Oh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do two things, that you would show us our need for Jesus and that you would give him to us. Amen. So many of us have come today with varying levels of reaction to the events of the week. A full range of emotions accompany the turning of the page into a new chapter of our political and national history. Given this cultural moment, I find it annoyingly providential as a preacher that the lectionary readings for this Sunday include a shockingly political statement from the mouth of our Lord. The Gospel of Matthew recounts for us the beginning of Jesus' formal ministry, the epiphany, the revealing of his public proclamation and work. After being baptized and tempted in the wilderness, and after defeating Satan there, the Holy Spirit thrusts Jesus into public ministry. And the statement we first hear out of the mouth of Jesus as he begins his public ministry is this political statement. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you and I may not readily hear this as political, but it is. We need to remember the context of the people hearing this statement. You see, for hundreds of years, from the prophets of old, they've been hearing this word about a coming kingdom. And we even remember some of those words from Advent and from Christmas about this coming kingdom and this coming king. Some of the things said about this were, the government shall be upon his shoulder. And for Israel, Declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand comes with a whole host of meaning from the Old Testament. And that host of meaning includes the king has come and he is toppling the government that's in charge of things. So it is a big inherent political statement. But several things about Jesus' statement here are shocking because this political moment, the arrival of the kingdom of God, is happening in a totally different way than almost anyone expected. First, Jesus begins his public ministry and makes his proclamation away from the center of religious and political power in the questionable margins of Jewish society. Everyone expected that the Messiah would first make his appearance at a place like Jerusalem. After all, the king is coming to establish himself and it would make sense that he would do so in the religious and political capital of Israel. And instead, the text authenticates Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus begins his ministry by withdrawing to Galilee. Galilee was the opposite of the center. It was on the edge of Jewish society. And being on the edge meant that it was a questionable place, a border region, where for centuries now, pagan cultures and Jewish cultures have been mingled. And so, in Galilee of the Gentiles, away from the center, in the margins, the king makes his proclamation. The kingdom has come. This is not how it was supposed to be. Secondly, Jesus begins his political campaign by putting together the most unlikely team. He goes and finds fishermen. Several years ago, I ate up the reality shows Deadliest Catch and Wicked Tuna, chronicling the escapades of deep-sea fishermen after Alaskan king crab and big fish off the coast of Massachusetts. And let's just say that on these shows, there was a lot of bleeping out of words. 
Some of these guys, though incredibly skilled with their hands, with sharp knowledge of seas and boats, they couldn't always complete sentences very well. The pecking order and social structure on these boats looked more like a medieval feudal system, just one organizational notch above the Lord of the Flies. In many ways, fishermen were no different in Jesus' day. And so Jesus, upon claiming the inauguration of the kingdom, approaches these men and calls them to be his disciples. And who are they? They're the riffraff, the scrappy tradesmen, men of the sea. What would be the equivalent in our region, dare I ask? It probably wouldn't be many of us here at the Advent, including myself, right? If Jesus arrived in our region, I think he'd take to the hills and find some burly bearded dude nursing a moonshine kettle. And he'd say, drop that mason jar and follow me and I will make you a distiller of men, right? (laughs) And just in case you think this is a stretch, remember that James and John were called sons of thunder, which sounds a lot like white lightning to me, all right? You see, upon announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God, Jesus does something that no one would expect the kingdom-bringing Messiah to do. He moves away from the center of religiosity, away from the seat of power, to the questionable margins, and says, I'm going to start here. There is a word being preached in Jesus' actions, and the word is this. Jesus comes to give the kingdom of God to the riffraff. But lest we think this proclamation is for someone else. The punchline is, Jesus comes to give the kingdom of God to the riffraff because the riffraff are the only kinds of people there really are. You, me, we are the riffraff. We just have nice clothes and sweet southern manners to cover up all our riffraffery. When Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and when he says it to the riffraff, He's talking to you. Now to get at what this means for us, I want to start with a question. If Jesus were to come back today, what would he say to us, 21st century Americans, in order to establish his kingdom? Some Christians would say that Jesus would deliver a message like this. You all need to love and accept one another. This narrative would explain that Jesus would come today to encourage us that we need to love and accept one another at any cost, that our antiquated notions of what is right and what is wrong need to be abandoned, and that we just need to love each other. But as Paul reminded Timothy, this particular narrative is skewed. Paul would say, you are co-opting Jesus to say what your itching ears want to hear. Your Jesus sounds more like Oprah Winfrey and far less like God's incarnate son, the word made flesh. Ironically, in reaction to this, what is typically called a theologically liberal view of Jesus' message today, theologically conservative Christians have often responded in this way. If Jesus were to return, what would he say? He would say, clean up your act. Turn from your wicked ways. You have abandoned God's truth and God's plan. The scripture says that to live like this and to be like this and to follow these rules and not the rules of culture. And Paul would say, you too have fashioned Jesus in your own image. So on the one side, the left would encourage us to say, all you need is love. And on the other side, the right would encourage us that Jesus would say, 
all you need is truth. Which one of these did Jesus or would Jesus really say? Neither. Jesus' message is entirely different. It comes from another world. It doesn't operate under the same conceptions of power that are shouted from the left and from the right in the news and on our social media feeds. Our itching ears couldn't have imagined a word like this. The word Jesus would have for us today is the same word he had for people 2,000 years ago. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In 2006, an outstanding movie came out, written by Mel Gibson and Iranian-American Farhad Safiniya. The movie was called Apocalypto. It is one of my favorite movies. In it, Gibson and Safiniya wanted to ratchet up the genre of chase films. Set in the Mayan kingdom of the 16th century Guatemala and Yucatan areas, the movie is one, of one suspenseful scene after another. Don't watch it if you have a heart condition. The main character, Jaguar Paw, is wrenched from his family in hiding and dragged off to a central Mayan city only to discover that they're being led to the top of a temple to be sacrificed to their god. Through twists of fate, Jaguar Paw is able to escape and the movie tightens the screws even more with a long and grueling foot chase in the jungle. Throughout the movie, we're completely wrapped up in this world with its real and serious problems and dangers. We're rooting for Jaguar Paw to stay alive and find his family, and we are hating his enemies, screaming for them to die. The foot chase reaches a climax. Jaguar Paw has managed to run all the way through the jungle to the coast, where, all of a sudden, his feet screech to a halt in the sand as he looks out onto the ocean. To our shock, the pursuers catch up to Jaguar Paw, but they too stop, drop their weapons, and find themselves staring at the same thing. What in the world has the power to arrest such an intense and emotional pursuit? The camera slowly pans out onto the water, and from another world, a fleet of Spanish ships. It's as if Gibson and Safani are trying to say that all the intra-Mayan fighting which is not insignificant, it's life and death in fact, can't hold a candle to the inbreaking of the European apocalypse, which history tells us will decimate the Mayan civilization. This scene is a fantastic metaphor for our passage today. Here we are, dealing with our very important political matters, fighting for justice, truth, goodness, and the like. Life and death matters chasing one another, ready to devour one another, when on the horizon, like the Spanish ships never before seen, we are stopped dead in our tracks as we behold the apocalyptic word. Not of the President of the United States, not even of the King or Prince of this world, but of the Creator of the universe, who shatters the horizon with this word, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 2017, it marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and it's therefore fitting that we attempt to remember that at the center of the debate between the Protestants in the church and those in the church loyal to Rome was an argument over the definition of the word repent in these very words of Jesus. 
Repentance, according to the reformers, wasn't really what many of us think. A turning from doing bad things to doing good things. Repentance wasn't behavior modification. Repentance was, as Bishop Allison said a few months ago, a change in the heart. A changing of perspective on oneself. A coming clean about who you really are. That you aren't as put together as you've tried to convince yourself that you are. That you don't have all your ducks in a row. It's a coming to your senses and having a sober, truthful view of yourself. And what gives us the freedom to be brutally honest with ourselves? Grace and grace alone. You see, the Roman church said that when Jesus proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he was saying, be penitential and then I will give you grace. But the revelation recovered in the Reformation was that Jesus didn't mean this at all. It wasn't a conditional word. It was a word of comfort. To paraphrase reformer John Calvin, while the Roman church said that Jesus meant be penitential and I will give you grace, Jesus meant quite the opposite. Jesus was saying, because the king is here, grace has come. Come back to your senses. Come back to your senses. Some of us have come into worship today with a hard heart, thinking that you have it all together, thinking that you're not the riffraff, thinking that you've done a pretty good job of keeping your nose clean this week, this month, this year, this lifetime. Repent. You are the riffraff. Or in the words of Miracle Max on The Princess Bride, you are the brute squad. Others of us have come into worship today fully aware that we are the riffraff. We've blown it in big ways and small ways, and life has dealt us a hard lot, and we've been unable to hold up under the pressure. Your heart has been softened by the blunt blows of the world, the devil, and even your own flesh. To the hard-hearted who needs to hear the word repent, or to the tender-hearted who has already come in repenting, Jesus has one word for you. The kingdom of God is at hand, and grace has come. The gospel writer Matthew, the writer of this episode, drove this message all the way through his gospel to a particular moment where the kingdom of God was more clear and on display than in any other moment in history. The moment when the kingdom of God revealed would display the splendor and majesty and power and strength of the king, the likes of which have never been witnessed before and would never be seen so clearly again. This was Jesus' magnificent inauguration ceremony, a splendid coronation where the king received his glorious crown, and put on a magnificent robe, and was given a royal scepter, and ascended his throne. Look with me at the kingdom of God on display at the end of Matthew in chapter 27. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. There's his robe. They put a staff in his right hand. There's his scepter. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. There's his crown. 
and he ascended to the high place called Golgotha on a wooden cross, and we crucified him. There's his throne. Jesus, the king, assumed his royal position there for you. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold your king. Behold the power in weakness, the victory in loss. Behold the grace in his eyes. Behold the love in his actions. Behold the forgiveness of your sins and behold your debt to God erased. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who gaze upon and survey this king. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Amen.